Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. So take your Bibles, open them to 2 Kings chapter 20 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 20 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we turn our attention to a Bible study that I've entitled Facing the Enemy of Death. You know, God used King Hezekiah in amazing ways, wonderful ways. The nation of Judah was blessed because of him. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was a man that was dedicated to God, that learned from his mistakes, and God used him. One of the highlights of all the kings was King Hezekiah. And we're blessed when God brings godly leaders into our lives. Men that are just committed, women are just committed to serving God faithfully and leading us in the ways that we're to go. It's a blessing to have them, and we can't have too many godly men and women that would be brought into our lives to encourage us through their spiritual leadership. And at the same time, it's very painful, extremely painful, when they leave, or when they exit, or even more when they die. I remember not too many years ago when Pastor Chuck Smith died. It affected me greatly, and I think it affected many people, because God really used that man and continues to use that man. Praise God for cassette tapes as they recorded all of his messages. And then somebody got him and took him and and converted him to MP3s and now we don't need to buy cases of cassette tapes anymore. It's all on 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 our app, on our phone or our iPad. But I praise God that he was recorded and that we can continue to be encouraged by him. Another man that I think of, although I wasn't personally affected by him, I think of J. Vernon McGee, who's still on the radio to this day and how God uses him to take you on the Bible bus and go through the Bible in five years. I know as a new believer in my commutes, he used to minister to my heart greatly as I was driving all over Southern California for my job. And so I'm thankful for the men and the women that God brings into our lives, and it's extremely painful when they die. It's a great loss. Because the Bible teaches us that death is an enemy. And it's true. Facing the loss of a loved one is painful. And it's hard. And it's the result of sin. Everyone dies because of sin. And death yet, at the same time, reminds us of hope. You can jot it down in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, it says, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, because the Lord has spoken. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Inasmuch as then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Revelation chapter 21, verse four. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Say amen to that. 
No more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's the future for every believer in the presence of God. And so today, in 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah faces death. Notice with me in verse one. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Hezekiah is in a place where he's to face death. He's face to face now with the reality of his own death. And notice it says in verse one, in those days. What days are are these referring to but those days of God's strength and faithfulness. Those days of victory. Those days of encouragement where God's faithfulness has been displayed. Where Hezekiah was in a good place serving God faithfully. And it's good to be reminded that even in times where the Lord is blessing and things are moving forward and great things are happening, godly men and godly women are not immune to sickness and not immune to death. Sometimes God will even use that sickness to bring himself great glory in the eyes of those that are watching. And every one of us, every one of us will face death. Every one of us will die of our last sickness is the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And we live in these human carcasses. Notice, not only is he facing death, but he was told to do something. And he was told to set his house in order. These are wise words, church. These are very wise words. We should live daily with our homes in order and not just wait until we get sick. We, we should live with our houses in order, our homes. I want to encourage you personally. Please set up a will. Or go further and set up a living trust. Take care of those pap- that paperwork that would speak for you when you can't speak for yourself. Take care of those orders that if you are in a coma, somebody's not making decisions for you that would be different than what you would desire if you were able to speak. It is just a little bit of work. But even if you're not facing sickness today, please, I beg you, set your house in order. Get things ready. If you have any thought of those that might be left behind, the best thing you can do for them is to set your house in order to the best of your ability. Having to face death through the court system, having to face a son in a coma, please, Get your paperwork in order and set in place those things that will speak for you when you can't speak for yourself. It's absolutely imperative. I don't want you to regret it. And so as a pastor, I'm telling you. And you know, a few years ago, I wouldn't have said this with such strength unless I personally experienced the devastating effects of not having paperwork in order. I'm telling you, please, For the sake of everyone that loves you, take care of this. These are wise words. They're important words. And I know we don't often think of them until we get the final word, but I I would say to you, 
that you don't have to be sick to do the right thing. It seems as if some people spend more time, more time taking care of things that really don't matter. You know, cleaning our houses, keeping them up. But please spend some time to set your house in order because death is inevitable. The Bible couldn't be clearer. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, it says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it says, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation or their dwellings. And it's interesting, as you survey various churches' websites, uh, perhaps even ours, although I think we've done a good job of this, you'll find a lot of studies about life, a lot of series teaching what, how to live as a Christian, what Christian living is, but you don't have too many Bible studies on Christian dying, much on Christian living. But as believers throughout the New Testament, especially if you would turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, like the believers in Thessalonica, then we too today not only do we need to be taught about Christian living, but we also need to be taught, as the Bible reveals, on Christian dying. And what it means for the famous saying to be, to be brought, up, brought to pass in our lives, as we've been taught by my pastor, Pastor Chuck and Pastor Jeff, that only one life is soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. And as someone who has seen a few years added to his odometer uh, in faster than I ever anticipated, it happens fast. And, and if you're not living life daily, it will pass you by. And you'll look back and wonder, what happened to my life? And by the way, it's never too, like, never too late, not only, number one, to set your house in order, but also, number two, it's never too late to start living for the things of God, to make a commitment deeper than you have already, to say, this is my life, God. You have given it to me on loan. I belong to you. You purchased me. You own me. My life exists because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is never too late to switch around your behavior and your mindset, to live your life fully for the things of God. And might I just add this? You, if the, you know, there's a lot of decisions we make, we make in such a way where we're like, man, I don't want to regret this. I don't want to regret this. A life lived for Jesus Christ, you will not regret of all the things that I have seen, and I've been at the bedside of many of the sick and dying, and had an opportunity even to speak with them and hear a history of their life, and I hear a lot of regrets. I hear regrets about not spending time with this, and, and I wasted my time with that, and we help process that so that the blood of Jesus Christ will remove any condemnation there on the deathbed or in the hospital room and helping them process the forgiveness of God, that there's no condemnation. But I can tell you this, as of today, of all the people that I've ever sat with, all the people I've ever talked to, whether I've spent time in a convalescent home, or in an extended living, or assisted living, or a hospital room, wherever I have been with those that are facing life and the end of life, as of today, I have yet to meet anyone that has ever said to me, you know, Pastor, I really regret dedicating my life to God. No one has ever shared that with me. No one has ever expressed a regret of raising their kids in the ways of the Lord, of making decisions that would honor God in their home, of being a godly grandparent or a godly grand... Never. Usually regrets of I could have, 
and I should have in the spiritual realm. And it's never too late. Set your house in order. Decide to follow God. And understand, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, it is appointed once for a man to die, but after this, the judgment. This is it, gang. This is life. This is our life. This is the life that God wants to lead you in and help you along. Paul, as he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, he's writing as a pastor. He's writing as a friend. He wants to comfort the brokenhearted Christians who had lost some loved ones. And as he writes, he recalls the three weeks that he spent with them, ministering among them. And as he taught them, he taught them about the return of Jesus Christ. And they had mistakenly taken his teachings and believed that the coming of the Lord happened before he came. And what would happen if he came? And, and months had passed and Jesus now hadn't returned and now people had died. And so they're concerned and they don't know what's gonna happen. Did they miss the rapture? Did they miss the resurrection? And so this poor church with new believers is confused and they, they have lost hope and they're unsure of what's happening and what's going to happen. And so notice what he says in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And so not only had they been new to theology and misunderstanding what was taught, but also they're dealing with ignorance, the lack of knowledge. Literally, that word ignorance means not knowing or not understanding. They just didn't know or understand what was happening after death. And it was their ignorance that many false teachers took advantage of. And, and it's really one of the places that cults and you know, manipulative pastors and leaders, they love to gain knowledge of, of, about you and ask questions from you and key in on areas where you're not so sure or where you're hurting so that they might draw you to their teaching or to themselves or whatever it is that is happening now, it was happening back then. And notice he says, for we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died. So how is ignorance, how is ignorance matched with faith? We believe, that's a strong word. We're convinced that Jesus Christ died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, notice, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So ignorance is met with two things, belief, faith, and the word of the Lord. And those are the things that will establish us, especially in times of concern. We don't need to worry we don't need to wonder about death or life after death because we have a revelation from God of what happens. And so therefore, it lays to us hope. Jot it down. Quite a few scriptures today, but please jot them down. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. 
We have absolute certainty with the revelation of God that we will be with him for all of eternity. And that's a long time. But among the believers, there were many speculations out there with many books that are written. And I, I mean, the, you would think over the years that, that publishers would stop publishing and people would stop buying these books that say, you know, I, have, I saw the light. Um, what was the latest one? The latest one was some kid that they popularized and, and he saw heaven and so his dad marketed this kid, sold millions of dollars worth of books and then what happened? The kid said it was fake. And how discouraging that we don't look to someone's revelation of heaven or even there's a guy right now that says he spent some time in hell. You know, I'm not really interested in his book. Even if he did spend time in hell, I don't want to know about it. I don't want to know anything about evil. The Bible says, that's why as believers, if we just follow the scriptures very simply, the Bible says to stay innocent in those things of evil. And so why would we be buying a book about some dude that said he went to hell? And, you know, what kind of standing does he have if he went to hell to begin with? Like, what's that all about? I went to hell. And I want to tell you about it. Bro, why did you go to hell in the first place? You see, we have absolute certainty that even in our minds, even when we're confused, even when we're gripped with emotion, the word of God doesn't change. And so by faith in the word of the Lord brings back a sense of calm and peace and confidence. And I am amazed that so many people listen to the words of those that say they died and came back again and visited this place or that place and at the same time reject or minimize the sure words of Jesus Christ who literally died and rose again. He literally experienced death, was buried, and rose again the third day. The Bible says in John chapter 11, verse 25, I, Jesus spoke to her and said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he die, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked the key question, do you believe this? On so a night, on so on, and so on a night that glorifies a twisted perversion of death, we come face to face with the one who overcame sin and death on our behalf. Now notice back in 1 Thessalonians 4 <clears throat> how sleep is described. Because when you're reading through this, you, it says in verse 13, I just want to talk to you guys. I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. Now again, with a word like this, there are many that like to rush in and create a doctrine that really the Bible doesn't support just because of this one word. And so they'll say, well, look, it says right here that you don't die, you fall asleep. And so this false teaching of what's, uh, what's been termed soul sleep, uh, and that's kind of like another teaching for purgatory where there's this in-between place where you don't really die, you just kind of are in limbo until the end of the age. The Bible doesn't teach that in any way whatsoever. When the Bible uses the word sleep, it is a metaphor. It is a description. It is what it looks like when someone dies. It looks like they're asleep. And so and it's an appropriate metaphor to describe how they look. 
And it's simply that. The idea here is a description of the body, sleep, not the soul. Even as you fall asleep, it's your body that's asleep. It is the mechanisms of your mind that are resting. This is a reference to the body. And it's a common phrase throughout the New Testament to refer to death. Remember in the book of Acts, as Stephen was before the Sanhedrin, sharing the gospel with them. It says at the end of Acts chapter 7, verse 60, they got so mad at him, they stoned him, and it says, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. It's even used in the Old Testament. David uses it. Uh, it's referred to the death of David. Uh, King David in 1 Kings chapter 2, it says, so David rested with his fathers. In the old King James, it uses the word sleep. And so as Christians, we use this term for death because it reminds us that it's only temporary. It's not permanent. Death is not the end for the believer. It's the beginning. The last breath that is breathed on earth for the believer in whatever millisecond of time leads to the very first breath in the presence of the Lord. It's only temporary. The body rests until the resurrection. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. A Christian doesn't have to fear death any more than fearing taking a nap because you will wake up. Isn't it amazing? Kids hate naps. I'm sure when you were a kid, you didn't like taking naps all that much. They just want to get the most out of life that they possibly can. They don't like them. They're not interested in stopping, in resting, and they're especially not interested in the middle of the day of eating a snack and taking a nap. They see it as the worst of the worst thing to happen in the middle of the day. But as we get older, naps are starting to look pretty good. <laughs> I mean, we'll try, to catch, we'll try to catch as much as we can. You know, there's not, there have been times when I've been so tired, I'd sneak out in, in the sanctuary while nobody's here. I uh, can't do that so much anymore because, I mean, we, since the school started, you never know when the kids are coming in and when they're going to use it. But I would find a place in here just for 15, 20 minutes and just get a quick nap and get right back in. That would be my, I didn't want to eat. I would even forego food on my lunch break to take a nap. And we were recalling today. Uh, back when, you know, talking about in our staff meeting today how ministry can make you tired sometimes and you get tired. But, but it's not just ministry you get tired. Everybody gets tired. doesn't matter what your job is. Now you're yawning at me, so you're tired of me teaching. It's all right. And so you, I remember back when I was working, uh, we, we, um, we worked, my office was right next to a Barnes & Noble. Now, if you guys are far familiar with Barnes & Noble, not only do they have a great selection of books, but if you walk through, they've got some amazingly soft chairs. And so what I would do when I was working and my lunch break, I would drive down to Barnes & Noble, I would find a corner chair somewhere, take a book off the shelf, open it, lay it on top of myself, and I would snuggle up in that chair and take a nap. I mean, naps are like, amen, give me more. You know, I don't want a 15-minute nap. If I can get that, I want a half hour. Yeah, give me a half hour, give me four or five minutes. You know, I'll, I'll buy one on an auction if I need to. Naps are good. And the thing about grabbing a few 
uh, Z's on a nap or, you know, taking a quick uh, sleeping on a plane perhaps is that you're going to wake up. And so the phrase of sleep to refer to someone that has died or passed away is a reminder if they're a believer, they're going to wake up. They're already awake in the presence of the Lord. That's just their body. That's just their body. A Christian doesn't have to fear death any more than fearing of taking a nap. You will wake up. And this reference is a reference not to the soul of a person, but to their body. Paul makes it clear that when a believer dies, his soul goes to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. So we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we have that confidence. Jesus told the thief on the cross that was next to him in some of the final breaths that our Savior ever took, some of the final words that ever came to God in human flesh were these. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There is no such thing as soul sleep. None whatsoever. There was a pastor that I read about who knew that his friend had lost his wife. And so he went over to the house to encourage and comfort him. And he told his friend, I'm sorry to hear that you lost your wife. But his friend quickly answered, you can't lose someone when you know where she is. And you haven't lost any loved one in Christ. You know where they are. The body remains on this earth, returns to dust, but the real person is with the Lord. You are not your body. Your body is an instrument by which you animate yourself and which is used by the, glo- by the power and the presence of God to communicate his love and mercy into other people's lives. It's good to know that we will not have this body forever. Did you know that? <laughs> we will not have, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm ready. I, I'm not gonna have this body forever. It's, I mean, for goodness sake, we just went go-karting and I tweaked my back go-karting. There's a word for that, old. I mean, seriously, what was I doing that was going to bring pain to me? I mean, I was racing to win. I guess that's probably part of it. I didn't show up to lose, I could tell you that. But did I win? No. Just makes me more hungry next time. But as, I, as the time moves forward and I'm now closer to seeing Jesus face to face than I ever have been before, the Bible promises me a new body, one that will be appropriate to live for all of eternity in the presence of God. And you will have a different body. Though we look at a person and say that he or she has died, we may visit the graveside of a loved one. We're confident that they're not there, that it's just bringing back memories and an opportunity to express sorrow and grief. Paul says, don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Because there is a group of people on the earth today that die without hope. But in Christ, there's hope, wonderful hope. You know, in the first century, the pagan world had a very dim view of death. They, they looked at death and stood there in despair. Death came to them with no hope. 
with no hope of the future. Listen to some of the writers and philosophers of the day. As they come with death, they would meet it with resignation and bleak hopelessness. Aeschylus once wrote, and I quote, once a man dies, there's no resurrection. Theocritus wrote, and I quote, there is hope for those who are alive, but for those who have died are without hope. Catalyst wrote, and I quote, when once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we all must sleep. And on their tombstones, they would write grim epithets were carved. Here's one. It was, it, it was on their tombstone. I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Hopelessness. But Paul says, be careful of sorrow. It can undermine your faith. He's not saying that death will not bring sorrow. Neither is he saying to put up a strong constitution and not let anyone know that you're hurting. He's not saying that when he speaks of sorrow. He's saying that for the believer that has faith in Jesus Christ, the sorrow is different. Sorrow nonetheless. But it's different because the rough edges of sorrow are softened a bit by the hope of Jesus Christ. And they strengthen a person to take the next step, as Elizabeth Elliot would teach us, to do the next thing. Sorrow happens at the loss of a loved one, whether it's expressed or not. Many times it is expressed, but it's a different kind of sorrow. Another opportunity that I have here as a pastor is to officiate, at least I have in previous years officiated memorial services, and there is a profound difference in officiating a memorial service for a believer and an unbeliever. It's palpable. It is noticeable. As is the faces of people, when you survey the room in a memorial service, you can quickly tell, not for everyone, but for many, whether they believe in Jesus Christ or not. Whether they're in this room with hope or they're in this room because they have to be. And you have to understand in our ministry here, when we officiate funeral services here and we have the privilege of being invited into a family's life and the pastors involved here, it is one of the most opportune times to preach the gospel. We have an audience that is captive and unlike many times, most of their life, the subject of life and death is on their mind in a very real profound way. And in that time, as you see with Jesus, he would use the opportunities in people's lives to insert his love and his hope. And so anytime you hear about a memorial service here or you see one as you're driving by, pray for the people that are in this room. There's this amazing openness. Not for everyone, but even with the hardest of hearts, the gospel starts to chip away. And at every memorial service in our church, in our in our fellowship family, the gospel is preached. You can be sure of that. And it's preached with authority, and it's preached with confidence, and it's preached with hope, and it's preached in such a way that reflects a compassion to those that are hurting in the room. So it's not that you won't sorrow, as he says that. Don't sorrow like others who have no hope. It's not like the Bible isn't saying, keep a stiff upper lip and, and don't sorrow at all. No, no, he just says it's different. Even Jesus expressed emotion when, 
at the tomb of Lazarus, the Bible declares that Jesus wept. And the idea behind this Greek word is not, you know, a tear was streaming down his, his cheek. And you could see that emo- this is a convulsive expression of exasperation and sorrow. And he put to rest that this whole teaching that men don't cry or grown men don't cry. It's simply untrue. The greatest man to ever walk the face of the planet cried at the devastating loss of his friend. Whether he was crying over Lazarus or he was crying over the pain that sin brought to the people there or the mourning or all of it together, Jesus expressed emotion. And you know, experts tell us, and you may be familiar with this, but for the sake of those that aren't, the experts that tell us that there are several stages in the cycle of grief, in the response to losing a loved one. Because when you lose a loved one, there is this feeling of ripping and tearing away. That it's not just, it's not just something you can push down and ignore. If it's not expressed and processed, it will eat you up alive and destroy you from the inside. And it's, if, if there was ever a time in your life when you have to express and live out not to fear man or to fear what people think about you or to worry about people judging you, it's at the time of deep loss. Because the more you push it down, it's going to come out eventually. And unfortunately, pushing it down just makes things harder and more difficult. Well, stage number one in grief is known as denial. And it's an amazing thing that God does in our, our bodies because you have an immediate sense of shock so that you don't experience the full weight of the loss. And part of the shock, part of the shock in how your body just kind of shuts down different mechanisms and it just zeroes in and kind of becomes laser focused is because then you start to process and just like in that shock, you're like, this isn't happening. This, this isn't happening. This, this didn't happen. I, it must have been a dream, or in more cases, you'd say this is a nightmare. And after the shock settles in, and there's a few days or maybe even weeks, the denial turns into guilt. And you begin to feel guilty. If I only would have been there, if I only would have done something, if I only could have done this, and you begin to process all the what ifs and what could have beens. And then once you process the guilt, next, the next stage they refer to is, is the anger or the blaming time, where you're very angry that this happened. Why didn't the doctors do this? And what about this diagnosis? And what about, and you begin to see uh, and think that if things would have, could have gone differently, um, things would have been, if, if situations would have been handled differently, maybe things would be different. It makes you really angry and difficult. And then after that, there comes a time of great discouragement or even depression, as your feelings are starting to come to the surface and sorrow grips your heart. And then over time, we don't know exactly how long there is. Um, there's no predictable uh, time frame. You can't just like in the first 30 days, and it's nothing like that at all, because those of you that have been through our grief share training, you know that everybody grieves differently. And that we all share, those of us that have grieved, we all share some commonality, but there's also a lot of uniqueness because everybody grieves differently because everybody's different. And there comes this time where, you know, denial doesn't even happen in stage, it doesn't even necessarily happen, have to happen in stages either, where stage one, then you go, this all can happen at the same time. That's what makes it so muddy and so difficult to get your equilibrium. Uh, but over time, God in his gracious love for us 
through the work of the Holy Spirit, not just our human body, but the work of the Holy Spirit, there is the stage of acceptance and hope and continuing on with life. It's predictable and it's normal. It's just hard and extremely hard. And the thing is, is that it was, you know, you, you think you're over a stage and then you, you, you're in a mode and then like, like a wave, man, it all comes back and it ha- feels like it happened yesterday. That too is normal. But what does but what Paul remind us of? We don't sorrow like those who have no hope. Hope, like love, is the lubricant in very difficult situations. You know, when the Hebrews buried their dead, they mourned for a month. The Egyptians, they set aside 70 days for mourning. Jacob, at the thought of losing Joseph, the Bible says in Genesis 37, 34, then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. David, at the loss of his son Absalom, says in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33, then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. O Absalom, my son, my son. Martin Luther, one of the key reformers in the church, by the way, Today is not just Halloween, it's Reformation Day. Did you know that? It's the day that symbolizes Martin Luther coming with his 95 theses and hanging them on the Wittenberg door in, in protest to the Roman Catholic Church and the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. That's celebrated today as well. Martin Luther was a good father. His sturdy spirit, which could face an emperor in war, was almost broken by the death of his precious daughter, Magdalena, at the age of 14. God, he said, has given no bishop so great a gift in a thousand years than he has given me in her. He prayed night and day for her recovery. I love her very much, but dear God, if it is thy holy will to take her, I would gladly leave her with thee, he said. And he would come to her and say, Lena, dear, my little daughter, thou wouldst love to remain here with thy father, Art thou willing to go to that other father? Yes, dear father, Lena answered, just as God wills. And when she died, he wept long and bitterly. And she was laid in the earth. He spoke to her as to a living soul. In German, he said, you will rise and shine like the stars in the sun. How strange it is to know that she is at peace and all is well and yet to be so sorrowful. That's what Paul's saying here. We don't sorrow like those who have no hope. Instead, we have confidence. It says in verse 14, we believe. We believe that if Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. This is the hinge and the hope of the resurrection in our lives. Although death is inevitable, the resurrection comes to everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, this is a glorious passage of the rapture of the church. We believe the pre-tribulational rapture that God would come before the millennial, before the tribulation and receive us to himself. But sometimes the weight of scriptures get lost in some of these debatable types of doctrines. Because before he ever speaks to 
the glorious hope of being forever with Jesus Christ in the rapture. No matter where you believe, it fits on the calendar, on the biblical calendar. He speaks to the broken heart and to the confused. He speaks to the one that has experienced great loss and great depth, and he just says this, look, I know it's confusing, and I know it's hard, and I know you're deeply sorrowful, but sorrow is different for the Christian because of hope. And we have hope in Jesus Christ that he will return for us. And there's great comfort and sustaining joy that not only will he return for us, but for all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, we'll be reunited with our loved ones that have gone before us. What kind of, reuni- what kind of reunion that's going to be? I don't know. I know there's a part of me that, that desperately wants to see my loved ones, my mom, my dad, my son. But how will that be in the presence of Jesus Christ? <laughs> how will that be when I meet my Savior face to face? How fast will be the wiping away of every tear? How fast will be the encouragement of knowing that I made it to heaven? How fast will it be that in the instant of what we kind of experience through time right now, that in the millisecond instant, whatever that is, to be in the presence of the Lord, everything is solved. It's all taken care of. Every question is answered. Every wrong is made right. Every lapse, every difficult, every deficit, every ache, every pain, every worry, every care, every concern, every loss is met with Yes, the reunion with loved ones, but even more so, what will worship be like in the presence of our Lord and Savior? What we hope for will be reality. When you share the gospel with people, when you tell people about the good news and the forgiveness of sin, it's so much more than a changed life today. It's so much more than a feeling of assurance that your sins are forgiven You see, you have assurance that life is given to you that is eternal, not temporary. That by faith in Jesus Christ, you have now become secure in the Father's hands. Check this out. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can take you away from what's been secured by you, excuse me, secured for you, by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All the other things that we enjoy here on earth, whatever it might be, are just bonuses. They're just extended of life for us to what? To be used in the master's hands. We, we live with all the effects of sin and all the consequences and our own mistakes and our own failures, but our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a real hope that we cling to and that we hold fast to And that even if we lose our grip, that even today you're listening to me and I know being reminded of loved ones is very hard, I know. And you're like, well, now I'm losing my grip again. It's okay. Because then when you start to lose your grip, you're reminded that it's actually not your grip that really matters. Remember I would walk in my kids, maybe some of you did, but when I would walk my kids when they were real little across the street, I would have them grab my finger, you know? 
and they'd grab my little finger and I'd walk across and if everything was safe, then I'd let them keep grabbing my finger. But if something crazy happened, if I needed to get them fast, if the light changed real quick or some, I, that finger, no, 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 I'm not gonna, I would so fast rip around and grab their wrist that they wouldn't even know what happened to them. They thought they were in trouble. They didn't know what happened. They'd go, man, that's pretty violent there. That's pretty crazy. Dad, that way, and we get back and they look, 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 look. There's danger here. And I want to make sure that we get across the street. How much more our Father in heaven would say to you and say to me in all of our weakness and all of our, you know, all of our humanity, he says to you in Jesus Christ today, hey, I'm going to make sure we're together for all of eternity. That's the hope of God. So Father, we're grateful. And uh, I know, I know, um, I know that you're going to use this Bible study in people's lives, even though it is a hard topic and very difficult. And I'm glad we could smile a little bit and I'm glad we could laugh a little bit um, because when we uh, deal with the loss of our loved ones, it's not so easy to smile or laugh. But I'm grateful, God, today, not only for your sure and steadfast promise, but also for this, this beautiful uh, I don't know what it is, a belief, a, a truth, uh, this beautiful doctrine of hope, hope that we just don't, it's not like, um, you know, wishful thinking, but it's a sure and steadfast trust that what you said will come to pass. And so I pray for those today listening, whether they're on the radio or on the internet or in this room, uh, downstairs perhaps, that even in Bible study, Lord, it's much better. I, I like, I'd rather teach studies on Christian living myself. But I'm grateful you put us into a heritage where we teach through the whole Bible and we deal with every topic because your truth will settle our hearts. Your truth will settle our minds. Your truth will give us confidence to continue living and serving those that are with us, that we might be faithful, even in the sorrow. And God, just for those that might be in different stages of grief tonight, I pray that you would give comfort. Your word says that you're the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. And so we receive that comfort and accept it and appreciate it in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week 